Welcome to the Order of Initiative, a D&D podcast where me and two of my friends discuss D&D, DMing, world building, and everything to do with running the game. So with me today, I've got my friend Nathan. Hello. And my friend Willis. Hello. And I'm Charles. So today, what I want to talk about is world building and your session zero when designing a D&D game. Now, for those who don't know, a session zero is typically what you're going to want to uh, do before you actually sit down and play the game. So for session zero, you want to discuss with your players your general idea for the game, as well as what they have in mind. You want to make sure everyone's on sort of on the same page for your session zero. Boy, howdy. Nathan, my guy. Yeah. What do you want from a session zero from your players? Well, uh, like you were saying, it's the whole purpose is to make sure everybody's on the same page. You don't want to get like halfway into your game, pull some stunt, and you have a player realizing, well, that's not not what I had in mind. Like, uh, mm -hmm. if, you know, running. Not everybody's into horror. I'm not into horror. You don't want to be running a horror game and then find out you're playing with me, and uh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> is that so, true? You don't like horror, or you just? Uh, well, I have, I haven't, uh, in D and D it's not as big a deal, but, uh, like movies and other sort of thing. I, I don't, I'm, I don't do horror movies. Figured it would be oh, a really? example. I don't uh, know. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's sort of a situation like that. It's sort of like the grand, the, that's the bigger picture type situation with session zeros. You don't want to, you want to make sure everybody knows what kind of game they're getting into DM and players like. Because mm -hmm. if a player comes to your table with a character that absolutely does not fit in your world, you want to, uh, <laughs> you know, have that discussion before you sit down to play. If you if you're intending to do like a grim horror gothic setting and someone wants to play a pixie, you know, <laughs> yeah. probably not on the same page. Yeah, exactly. I think another thing that uh, you want to address with your players is comfort levels, in terms of. Nathan, you kind of touch on that with, like, maybe someone isn't comfortable with horror. But you should get a, a sense of how how people feel about any sort of sexual content. And I don't mean, you know, I, I don't think there's room for, like, depicting sex at the table. But some players might not be okay with even flirting. And you want to just at least touch base and make sure where everyone's head is at. Exactly. You gotta. I mean, it's a game. The whole point is to have fun, and you don't want anybody sitting there, you know, feeling uncomfortable, uh, and and when they should be having a good time role playing or killing monsters. Yeah, and I think this is a good time to talk about something that I've seen, which is like a, um, it's kind of like a comfort level survey at the beginning that oh, yeah. lists a whole bunch of things like um, romances, like sexual content drugs all the things and then the players rated on a scale from really not comfortable with that to i would like to see this in the game i want nothing but drug binges at the table <laughs> we'll, just, we'll mark you know cocaine heroin everything everything up at a 10 yeah so I, want, I want i want all of this and i think there really is a lot you can get into in terms of um just understanding what people want because there's not one way to play D&D. &D. There's quite literally endless. So get a feel for if your players want to lean more into role playing or if they just want to dungeon dive. Mm -hmm. And 
I think it's okay to eventually realize that maybe the people you had in mind aren't a good fit for what you want to run as a DM because you need to be having fun too. So if you if it you know if it turns out that all your players want to do is just kill monsters and you wanted to do a, like a politically heavy intrigue campaign, you know maybe maybe you might want to look for other players. Compromise yeah. is always possible, but yeah, I had that happen the... with. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. um i had that happen with a group of uh my like close friends actually that i started dming for they um when i started it i kind of wanted to do sort of a story heavy sort of thing where everything you know story comes first and then the mechanics support it and i you know, foolishly didn't really do much of a session zero and they didn't seem interested in one. And I, I didn't impress upon them the importance of it, but they, they kind of wanted to play more like a video game where it was all mechanics and, you know, like they're fighting and everything's comes down to like a die roll. And there's not really more like the story happens around them and they get to smash monsters and, (laughs) you know, do shit in the, in the, uh, interim. Mm Mm-hmm which was ended up kind of being not what I wanted. And there were other problems too, as there always are, but that was one thing I noticed that one thing I noticed that a lot of, especially newer DMs tend to forget is, um, you you know, a a good, a good chunk of the time they'll get the idea that this is a a game. It's supposed to be fun. We need to make sure the players are having fun. But like Charles mentioned earlier, the DMs a player too. And uh, sometimes I'll, I'll hear stories of DMs, uh, talking about oh, it's like players want to do this I need to make sure that they're having a good time and I have to say well are you having a good time uh, <laughs> and that's that's for some weird strange reason this weird thing that gets overlooked and I think the session zero is also an excellent time to to catch that definitely mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of disagreements and a lot of uh, quote unquote RPG horror stories that I, I see or hear about it seems like the root cause is almost always a miscommunication in what each individual player wants. Mm-hmm. So, so I have a question for you guys. In, in a session zero, say, like the example that was used earlier, you're running a grim dark campaign and somebody wants to play a pixie, and you run into this player that has a total disconnect from what you want to do. Like, how do you deal with that? I think earlier the better so like and and again this is kind of the importance of the session zero so if someone comes to you saying i want to play a pixie in session zero i would tell them hey you know i don't know if they like totally fit this setting i i very rarely like totally shut down a player's idea but i at the very least will tell them hey you are the exception to the rule here just so you know um like i've had i've had characters who wanted to be like nomadic elves and in my setting, elves very rarely leave their city or homeland. And so I, I usually tell them, like, hey, so, like, you can do that. Just be aware that you're kind of an anomaly for doing this. So I think there, you know, it was my own example of a pixie in a gothic world. I think there is a room for it, just a very, like, small amount of room. <laughs> <laughs> and it is important to remember that uh, as adventurers, depending, especially depending on the level of game you're going to get if you're going to get to like level 10 your adventures are already the exception uh Mm. like you're you're, these are exemplary uh powerful uh 
uh, unique heroes and characters. So it's not, it wouldn't necessarily be strange to have a party full of exceptions because they already yeah. are that. It's yeah. just your your players need to to be aware of that. That yes, you, uh, you're you're this pixie, this sort of more lighthearted, uh, excited character in this really dark world. How does that impact them? That's it's not only that they need to recognize that they're the exception to the rule, but it's also how does how do they how does the world affect them? That's a good it, point. They, it would be good for players to consider the world you're giving them and not just not just come like bring in the character they had in mind already with no altercations whatsoever like you've been uh, telling me charles about your character Locke. i i, I got his name right right yeah yeah he's like like a this, you know this really binary uh, uh in regards to good versus evil uh upstanding moral character in uh bavaria yeah in the curse of strahd campaign setting I can't imagine that's like that's there's definitely a disconnect there, but from the sounds of it, he's like uh, like you've. I'll actually I'll let you talk about him a bit because yeah, uh, well, the setting is certainly affecting him. Yeah, and it, I sort of intentionally built a character around the setting. Um, I don't. I didn't know too much about Curse of Strahd. All I'd really heard is that there will be terrible moral choices all the time, and that's proving true. So with that in mind, I, I built this character who had these very basic ideas of heroism. Um, his dad was a great hero, and he's trying to follow in his footsteps. So he thinks good is good, and evil and evil, and evil is evil, and you always know which is which. And so as we're playing through, I won't give spoilers for the campaign for anyone listening who hasn't played, but as I'm playing through, uh, he's faced with a lot of decisions that are not black and white, and it's really starting to wear on him. And honestly, he's one of the more fun characters I've played in a long time just because he, he's putting on a facade of heroism pretty much all the time. Um, but there's starting to be a lot of chinks in his, his armor, so to speak. So I think that that is a pretty good... don't want to toot my own horn, but that's a pretty good example of building a character for the setting and not just building a character because I want to play this. Yeah, and at first glance, he doesn't really appear to be a character that fits in Curse of Strahd very well. He's, he's you know, you're in, we're in this dark setting with this, this sort of um, bright young hero, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's. But once we actually look at who the character is and how the setting impacts them and how they interact with that, and we can see that it actually works fairly well. But that's, and that so that's something that we can say in a session zero. Somebody says, "I want to play Pixie." Well, how how what is this? pixie doing here and what is the setting doing to them yeah i mean the other reason Locke is so cheerful is because he's a blood hunter and i just fought so hard to not make him an edgelord which is not easy with a blood hunter man <laughs> I, I i can understand i i'm, I'm right there with you and i, I already gravitate towards ed, edgelords it took every ounce of my willpower to not make him edgy <laughs> i feel that deep in my bones and I do think, um, while I, I would consider myself a very lenient DM, I pretty much always let a character or a player play what they want to play or do what they want to do um, in terms of flavor. I do think it's a valuable skill to know when to tell your players no. If someone wants to play a pixie, and in the lore of your world, the pixies were eradicated eons ago, there's probably no wiggle room there. 
So there are definitely cases where you can tell them, no, that doesn't suit the setting. Even if you're some crazy exception that didn't get wiped out, this, you know, just no in this case. Yeah, I can agree to that. That's actually a, a tough lesson that I'm always learning because I'm in the same mm -hmm. boat where I don't like to say no. I like to make sure my players are getting to live the fantasy and, and that they want to. But every now and then I'll get put into a situation where it's just I, I I've had times where players come to me with a character idea that uh, I'm not totally cool with. But I'm like, you know, what? it, it works fine. And then for like the next week, I'm just it's it's I'm dwelling on it. It's like, oh, how am I supposed to, how am I going to get around? I'm going to work with this. And eventually it's just at the end of the week. I have to say, you know what? I thought about it. And I don't I don't think it's going to work. And it really sucks to have that conversation a week after you said it was cool. Yeah. So if, yeah. If you're not comfortable about it, let your player know. And if after you talk about it for a bit and you realize it's not going to work, just cut it off there. And it doesn't feel good, but it's better that it gets handled there than uh, months into the campaign when you run into that block and they've already been playing it and having fun and it's 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 not working out. And I think one of the worst things that a DM can do, and I hear stories about this all the time, is where they don't like a character, or they think a character doesn't work for their campaign, and so they kill the character mm. off without having any sort of conversation with the player uh, just to get rid of it. Yeah, that, communication that, no. is always key. Oh, you yeah. always, always should try to talk stuff out first. Actually, I would even argue that, like, you can... Uh, I mean, that, that's... I was going to say that you can nudge a character and a player in a direction through game mechanics. Like, if they're being an asshole, have characters and NPCs react to that. But that, if a DM just has a problem with a character existing at all, I don't know how you can nudge that with mechanics. I think that is a situation where you have to actually talk with them. Yeah, and I had uh, a situation where one of my players was the same thing. He was He was an asshole to everybody. And I had the NPCs react appropriately. And it had the unfortunate effect of instead of him changing his character's behavior, well, I mean, he changed his character's behavior, but he changed it from talking to NPCs to not talking to anyone because, <laughs> no, they're just going to be mean to me. <laughs> it's like, you, you called their mother a whore. And I think like, that's... Boy. And, and I think that's just uh, another... Uh, right back to the session zero, that's a problem with expectations. Uh, you, you're playing... You, Presumably, you're playing with a character who wanted to be the really cool, powerful, badass, probably Geralt of Rivia type character, mm. and uh, you—that's not what you were envisioning for this character, this world. And so you had these characters react to him like that, and that, um, rather than sort of re make him realize that no, I'm not playing right because he's not, he's not playing wrong. Uh, he had he realized, oh, this is how characters react to to my character. I need to change that up, and so. That would be a situation where I would probably, rather than have NPCs react first, I'd say, "Hey, just uh, want to just have a quick discussion about expectations." Yeah, I think mm -hmm. there's sometimes where you kind of have to do it live. Um, I recently had a character who's sort of the grumpy dad of the group, um, which is usually fine and endearing. Um, but I think he, I think Willis might know where I'm getting. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and and no offense, Kai, I love you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> There was a, recently a time where the, the party had just come out of sewers and were covered in literal shit, and this character wiped some of this literal shit on a random NPC walking past. So 
you know, I don't really have a chance to discuss that with the player. So I just reacted as the NPC who promptly punched him in the face. And I feel like that's a fair reaction. And I, I should also say that after that session, I did touch base with that player and say, hey, so like, I hope that didn't seem too harsh, but you know, people don't usually take kindly to having shit wiped on them. And he, and to his credit, he was like, yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> so I, I think there, that's a pretty good example of how you can show your players, hey, your actions matter. And I don't think it's really like necessarily the fault of the player. I think sometimes players get into this idea that they're maybe a little untouchable. We're basically gods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, hubris. <laughs> I think it's, it's good to keep your, your characters in check. Yeah. That was uh, the other Part night. Of that, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the other night when we were playing, there was that uh, comment made where we could probably just burn this whole village to the ground and get rid of the hag that way. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. You could. I I don't mind that comment so much. I, I think he was sort of tongue, tongue in cheek. I'm hoping. <laughs> um, but I think the, like, the, the shit smearing thing, Thinking about it now, I think some of the reason it, it bothered me as a DM is because when you are DMing, you are in the mindset of these random NPCs. So mm. even though the player isn't doing it directed at the at the DM, I'm sure they're just doing it because it's funny or endearing or like like he knows it's not a good thing, but he's just kind of doing it to to be an asshole. But I think on some level as a DM, you do take it personally. Am I Am I wrong in thinking that? Oh, no, I that? definitely, I felt that. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, it depends on exactly who they're targeting. If it's it's random no-name NPC in the city, I don't know if I would mind that much. But, oh, it's, That's true. When you, when, you, when you work all hard trying to come up with this cool villain or this cool NPC and come up with a cool name for them, and uh, the first time they hear that name, and they, they make oh no they change the name to uh, Jingles or something like that. Like, yeah. All right, cool. That's fun. <laughs> I think that's like unavoidable. It's gonna happen, and I've I've accepted it, but it still hurts. I I I've learned the uh the, a way to try to get around that is to do closer to like quote unquote normal names for cities or characters. Yeah. It's and I, trust me, I I do like made up names all the time, but. It's a lot easier for players to fuck with those names. I think one of the most important aspects of creating a name for anything is to say it out loud. Just like for the love of God, mm. say it out loud. Because if you're saying it out loud at the first time at the table, and then you realize that this character's <laughs> name is Boner, you're gonna be like, "Oh, <laughs> what?" That actually, that actually oh, might be ahead. a good transition. We're talking about coming up with names and stuff to. Uh... Unless anybody has anything else to say on, on Session Zero, we can talk a little bit about, about world building. Did I? No. I don't know. I felt like there was something, oh, but I actually, forgot what I it did. Was. I had one other thing I wanted to touch on, which is um, in your Session Zero, feel free to invite your players to weave their backstories together, especially if mm. it's a group of people that don't know each other. Well, yeah, if they don't know each other too well, and honestly, it works better if the players do know each other, I suppose. But, you know, encourage people to already know each other. Maybe they're siblings or they're, they already have adventured together. If you have party connections um, before session one, 
it'll make session one less awkward. And session one is always going to be awkward, I guarantee you. Even if you've even if you're playing with people you've been playing with for 20 years, as soon as you step into the skins of new characters who don't know each other, it's awkward. And mm -hmm. I guess on that note, uh, I guess it's, it would be important to note that session zero is not just for the DM, it's for the players as well. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you're not working with uh, uh, characters that are going to be uh, weaving their backstories together and having known each other, it's all, it is very important to make sure that the characters that the players are, are playing can get along. Uh, session zero for a lot of groups is is character creation. I know I, I personally like keeping secrets from my party early on, so it's not necessarily for me, but uh, a, good, a very good way to make sure that you come up with a party that will work well together and has uh, chemistry is to make them together. And if that's out of the question, as it is for a lot of groups, at the very least, talk briefly about who your character is and what they do and what they're like and what they hate so that you don't start the first session and uh, you have a character that hates demons with uh, <laughs> an absolute passion and the party warlocks at, a warlock at a tiefling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that you I, want to avoid that, and that's what Session Zero is for. I had another kind of question for you guys that um, to set it up a little bit. I had a session zero as a player with a, a friend of mine. And when we were coming up with ideas for my character, um, I would kind of like pitch something and be like, you know, like, is that okay? Or like, all right for the session. And then he would also say something or he would come up with something. And it was like this kind of awkward back and forth where he would, he would pitch something for my character that I didn't necessarily want. And I had to be like, ah, well, I mean, that's not <laughs> where I was going with it. But my question is, is as a player in a session zero where the DM is kind of dictating your character to you and taking it in directions you don't want to go right off the bat, like, how would you guys handle that? Or if you have any stories on something like that? Hmm. I, uh, I think I'd bring that right back to a matter of expectations. That situation sort of sounds like the player had expectations about what they wanted to do and the DM didn't share those. And I think that's the first step you want to do is before you hop into character creation, the DM should talk about his world and the game that he wants to run so that you, the player, have the expectations you need to make a character that would fit into that world. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, DM should remember it's the player's character. The player needs to be... 100% happy, or as close to that as possible, with who they're playing. If you want them to be engaged with your game and excited to come back every time to be this character, let them be excited for the character. And I think and... it is sort of a tricky thing for a DM to guide character creation if a player is having trouble um, coming up with it. And well, it's like, you know, you just joined one of my campaigns recently, and we, mm -hmm. we had multiple sessions brainstorming your character um, <laughs> yeah but i think we did a pretty good job of like bouncing stuff off each other and as a dm i try to be re really receptive if a player's like no nah, that's not super what i had in mind it's like okay cool great let's uh let's figure out a direction you do want to go in mm -hmm. and i guess on the flip side of that what is your guys's advice for care for players that just they have no idea what they want to do for a character <laughs> and they're just oh. like Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have Every question example. you ask them, I don't know. I know exactly what I do. I ask them what their favorite action heroes are or like favorite movies. Like, hey, like Harry Potter? 
Mm-hmm. What do you like about Harry Potter? Do you like the part where they shoot spells? Do you like when they do potions? Maybe you could be a wizard or an artificer. Or like, do you like, have you seen The Witcher? Have you heard of Bloodhunters? <laughs> like, <laughs> if people are, are willing to play D&D, I'm pretty sure they like some form of action or fantasy, and they should be able to point to at least one character that they would like to emulate. I feel like the Harry Potter artificer thing was pointed at somebody I know. Was it? No, I was just that really was just oh. an example. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind then. <laughs> Another thing, uh, I guess, with players like that is it sounds to me like in that case you've got an audience member. I don't know if that's the exact name for the player type, but it mm. uh, sounds to me more like a player who's less invested in the game itself and more uh, wants to ha- just hang out with their friends and watch the story unfold. In which case, their own character might not really matter to them as much. Uh, and I, I actually like Charles's um, uh, method a lot. I don't know if I would have personally considered that, uh, but I think that that might be a good step to take. But even then, once they get the character made, if they weren't, if they were at a step where they don't really know what they wanted to do, even once they have that character, there's a chance they might still not be able to step into those shoes, and that's fine. Uh, if you talk to them after the game and they sound like they're not enjoying themselves, that's a different story. But you know. If, mm-hmm. if you talk to them afterwards and say, oh, that was a blast. I loved it when they did that, and this was fun, and you blew up the lich, and there was a dragon. <laughs> That's great. That's if a hell of a first session. Damn. I, <laughs> drag, I put dragons in every session. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you might not see them, but they're there. <laughs> they're just always watching. Loads of invisible dragons. Oh, yeah. it's My setting's wild, man. Well, you do, you do polymorph dragons, too. Oh, yeah. I'm not big on that, but I get it. I don't do it often. I enjoy the trope. It's it's like the wise sage character, but they're also a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I think we should move on to world building. Oh, yeah. Um, I just had... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that... that um... Me and Charles have been going back and forth on world world building stuff that we see on the uh, the world building subreddit. I discovered this yesterday, and I'm in love. Oh, you <laughs> our world building? Yeah. yeah. I think I sent I sent, I sent, so I sent you all the stuff I was finding there too. Yep. It's, that that post that um talks about like currency that's I think it's called a glimmer. Uh, yeah. It is this like snappable coin that snaps into like up to eight pieces. And that's just such a cool idea for currency. And it also um, gave me ideas for like the lingo associated with it. Like I'm just picturing people like, yeah, that's going to be a fourth. Just referring to like one fourth mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. I think the pieces were called uh, like snaps. Like yeah. the, the individual Clips. pieces were snaps or something. Clips. Yeah, that's what it was. That's just so, so creative. And it like genuinely bums me out that I've already established gold in my my setting to just be <laughs> fucking normal pieces of metal. How boring is that? At I, least uh, it's not Electrum. Oh, no one likes Electrum. It might, might, might be good to, I guess, uh, my first comment on world building then is uh, start small. Uh, and yes. made, at least for in regards to D&D, don't get too wacky. I think the glimmers were actually really cool. I'm not sure that's something I'd use in my D&D game, though, solely because the, we've, I've got these wonderful books that tell me how much everything is, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. having to change the entire currency there, I think, would confuse me, and then certainly confuse the hell out of my players. This, there would be a lot of converting you'd have to do with that. 
and this actually um, brings me to something that I saw the other day. It was this wonderful video on hard world building versus soft world building. And for anybody who doesn't know kind of what the difference is, um, hard world building is where it's like you've got facts about the world. Um, every place has written lore. Um, things make sense because they happened a way that's realistic and super believable. And then soft world building kind of goes the other direction with it, where it's like sometimes sometimes things are the way they are and you don't necessarily know why, but the way things are have a point to the story. Um, so they're just kind of two different methods. And oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Uh, I burped. I didn't even notice. Oh, well, damn it. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I it comes to... to oh, keep going. Oh, yeah. I was going to say when it comes to, to D&D, and since we were also talking about Session Zero, that's something that is great to nail down and figure out whether your players want... Do they want something super realistic that they can just sink their teeth into where the currency, you know, is this way you know this super special currency and it makes sense or do they want something where it's like you know i don't really want to worry about what currency i'm spending when i'm buying things i just want to get the magic item from the shop you mean in and terms that's of like does your gold break down to silver and copper which i think is a more realistic or is it just everything's gold flat gold is that what you mean um i think it's it's sort of like a um mechanics versus story immersion sort of like where why is the like i've run into this a lot where a player will walk into a tavern and the the dm maybe is a little a little new and they don't really know right offhand how much gold is worth in regards to like food and staying in a tavern they'll be like oh yeah staying at this tavern is uh 10 gold and then a player who's played for a long time is like that's out outrageous <laughs> um but then hard world building would be like oh it's 10 gold because all the other inns in this town have burned down and they're you know they've cornered the market and they've got a monopoly and it's like you there's a concrete like reason book. for everything uh -huh. yeah whereas like soft world building would be like oh it's 10 units of money ten because money, that's please. what it is yes 10 money I do like the distinction between soft world building and hard world building. Um, I think a lot about something uh, Brendan Lee Mulligan said. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a DM who, from College Humor, he, he does a Dimension 20, I believe it's called. Um, he sat down and talked with Matt Mercer about DMing. And, you know, I respect both these guys a lot. And, and Brandon said, create enough of your world that you know how to fill in the gaps um, on the fly, essentially. So, again, if, if you're building a world from the ground up, that's going to feel overwhelming. Do not design every detail. Don't design every city. Don't even name every city. Like, super especially don't. Um, but design enough of your world that if a player asks you a question, you know how to fill in that gap. You can make, an, you can make basically an educated guess about what it is. And the thing is, your players don't know you don't know. <laughs> You'll seem like a genius. You'll seem like you've planned everything. 
And another thing I want to stress is nothing is canon until it's presented at the table. So if you had an idea for this part of the your continent that's all desert and ruins and abandoned, and just through natural developments, the players want to go there, and it makes sense for there now to be people there, well, now there's people there. You don't have to hold to anything the players don't know. Here's... Also, if the players do know it, you're still God. This is true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. think, uh, it, and of course, it's, it's presenting a, a retcon maybe might be uh, unsavory, but uh, I've, I've, I've certainly done a few retcons in my day with information players knew and they just didn't notice. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, if your players don't take notes, then... Then all know. the power is yours. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> I, I really, really fight against retconning. I don't know that I ever have. I, uh, I've changed the name of continents because I thought they were stupid in the middle of a game. I've even asked <laughs> my players, like, hey, I'm going to change this name because I hate it. You guys cool with it? I'm like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you were in that group, Charles. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I guess I, that's an example of like how little it, it can matter because I don't even remember that. I do like the idea of um, uh, I, I I think you're right, and minimizing retcons is probably good, but it's just also important to remember your players are people, and memory mm -hmm. is flawed. And uh, if there's something that you don't like, it's entirely possible your player won't remember what it was before. Um. So Nathan, I don't remember the exact uh political setting at the time but would it have been feasible for that continent to have literally changed its name through political upheaval uh or did, i mean it doesn't have to be upheaval but just they changed the name i don't know i uh, admittedly i i think i like that less unless there was a really good reason for it to happen the, the political situation that continent was more or less stable so uh I, I think I very easily could have said a new regime comes into power and says, oh, we're changing the name to Shara now. But that's, uh, uh, I, I think I, I would prefer just stealthily saying, all right, we're just going to start calling it this now and not have to worry about that. Because, I mean, uh, at, at the end of the day, a name change isn't such a big impact that it needs too much explanation behind it. And it's just, you just start calling it something else and nobody mm -hmm. seems to care. Uh, and, and like, actually, and it's not really like, I'm not writing a TV show. I'm not. I don't have hundreds of thousands of fans that are uh, parsing <laughs> through every single moment <laughs> to line of dialogue to find the tiniest little consistency. I'm playing with five people that that don't take notes and don't have memory. So uh, it, it's it retconning. It, it, it hurts him on my end. Like I I know that that happened and it can it just frustrates me a little bit. But my players aren't going to remember. And uh, as long as I don't think about it, no big deal. Feel it. Out of, so, out of curiosity, what was the the first name of the continent? <laughs> it was um. So uh, for all those uh, listening, I created this setting when I was in high school. Oh no! And I've been oh. changing it for a lot of time ever since. And the name of the the nation was originally Shadon. Oh. Uh, and uh, based off of the the word shadow, if you didn't pick that up, uh, <laughs> and I decided, you know what? That's really stupid. And we're gonna call it Shara now. So, were they called like Shadonians? Yeah, they were. <laughs> um, while we're on the subject of continents and notes and things like that, um, I've run into a situation where um, my players are like, oh, let's get a map of the surrounding area so that we know 
things where they're at and stuff like this. And I like to be able to let my players do what they want for the most part, as long as it's reasonable. And so it's really hard to say like, you know, Oh, sorry, there's no cartographers. Um, And I kind of sometimes get through it just by saying like, Oh, this is a small town. There's not going to be any cartographers here, but like at a certain point when they want to get a map, they should be able to get a map. And so how do you guys deal with things like that when making a map will concrete where some things are? Make a small map. Uh, actually, and this is, this is my, like, I, this is what I started off talking about when we started this, is start small. Um, mm-hmm. You don't need to map out your entire setting immediately. I did that, and I had a lot of fun doing that, but that's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, I think the, the easiest way to start DMing and start working on your setting is you design a town. You put in a blacksmith, you put in a temple, you put in a tavern, you put in uh, a wizard if you want. You just make sure you have a location where all of your players can get the things that they need. And then you start throwing in leads and in plot hooks. And if they want a map, well, you can give them a map that was created by an NPC. One that's not perfect and is, uh, if, if it is not correct, you have uh, plausible deniability as to why that is the case. Uh, you don't even have to say exactly what some something is that's on the map. You could say, you could put a big X next to a mountain on your map that says, Danger Monster! And you don't have to send that in stone what that monster is. You just know that there's one there. It could be a Hydra. It could be a Goralon. It could be a flock of owlbears. Who knows? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Like, starting small is a good way to not overwhelm yourself or set things in stone. And also, like, depending on your setting, if it's set in a very, like, medieval setting, most peasants in the medieval times had no idea what the world looked like they might not have like left their country ever they might have thought it was a disc yeah (laughs) Um, it might be a disc in my setting it is um but but like what the hell was i saying they and another thing is like you can give them i think nathan was kind of leaning on this like even if they do get a map it doesn't have to be one to like a a one-to-one topographical completely accurate map if it's just a map some local dude drew, it might be off by miles and miles. It might be. It looks like a dear. treasure map written uh, like, by a five-year-old. <laughs> a toddler with a crayon drew it. That's in one of the games that I play. It's it's West Marchestown. That's exactly what I did. I said, "You arrive in this town. There are things here. Here's a map of the surrounding area. Go wild." That's actually giving me ideas, Nathan. I like the idea of like really generic things on a map that just like. Just draw like or have like an, a, a symbol of like what kind of looks like a monster is like, is that a dragon? Is that <laughs> a worm? Is that like it's probably not good, but I don't know what that is. And also it could be anywhere in this 20 mile radius. And that the best part of that is that you don't have to design what things are where because you just have to put in a map and have a general idea. And then uh, a, one set at the end of a session, a player says, I want to go check out that that weird dragon worm thing. And then you've got a week to decide what it is. Yeah, exactly. So, something. Um, this is a, a basic D, uh, DM skill that I'm still getting better at, honestly. For that example I said, where like there's just a, a vague shape of a monster, it can totally work, and in fact might work better to not know. And then once the players start having theories, they're like, "Oh, I bet it's a dragon." 
then make it canon. And if you go down the route they were theorizing, they will feel like geniuses. And they will also think that you set it up. Everyone wins, you look smart, and they feel smart. Yep. Sometimes yeah. I'll even change what I've already written to be like what players oh. came up with because their idea was better than mine. Yeah, and that's like, I love the the whole thing. It was like, oh, is he a werewolf? Well, he is now. Write that down, write that down. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to reveal something, Willis. Uh-oh. I don't think it's a spoiler. It, it might be. But bear with me, because you, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Willis is part of my my D and D game currently as a player, and in this town that is being kind of manipulated by hags, um, they encountered a hag. Uh, well, you guys already know this. Encountered yeah, yeah. a hag who was giving villagers tea and also tried to give the players tea. Only one took it, and then as the party left her her home, she invited in another one, and the party all went, "Oh shit." Well, that's why everyone in this town is so weird. It's because she's giving everyone tea. That is not what I had in mind, but it is now. <laughs> that's I actually... Just had, I just had this idea of, like, tea that when you guys drink it, it gives you hallucinations of your greatest dreams coming true. And also, at the same time, everyone in this town is super weird. And yeah. you guys made that connection, and I was just like, you know... I totally see why they think that, and now it's canon. <laughs> see, I was actually like, when I can't remember who it was that pitched that. When they pitched that, I was kind of like, I don't know that I would put those two things together, but it could be like, hmm. like it wasn't a, a logic leap that I made, but I was like, I could, I could see Charles going somewhere with this. Like, uh -huh. well, spoilers now. I am. The, the, I think the important <laughs> thing to consider is the land behind the screen is a mystical place that grants all who live their great power. Not not necessarily the power you're thinking of, the power to control the world, but the power of, of confidence, the, the, the power of illusion. Your players think you're God. You think mm. you have all the answers, and they don't know what's behind there. there. There's a meme that goes around on D&D on &D where... Uh, you know, the player looks at the DM's notes thinking, oh, there's got to be some great stuff there. And all, this, and all that's written down is like, <laughs> goblin? <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like. You don't have all the answers, but your players think you do, and you can use that. Yeah. Uh, another or thing, and I think Matt Mercer might have said this, um, if, if your players ask you a question and you just go blank and you can't improvise something, just say like, oh, uh, dang, it's in my notes, but I can't find it. If you say that convincingly enough, they'll believe you. And again, it just builds this illusion that everything is planned out and there is an answer. I just can't find it right now. And yeah, that's, that's... Better than, that's better than going. I don't know. Another <laughs> option is, and this one's less subtle, but it can be used in a case of great emergency is when something happens and you're just flabbergasted. You just, all right, let's take a five minute break. I need to use the restroom. And then go scream in a pillow for five minutes. Like, figure out what the fuck you I need to do. have I've... called for many a bathroom break so I could figure something out. <laughs> One of the I moves a... that I'll use is somebody will ask me something and I'll be like, oh, um, I have that written down. And I'll just like shuffle my papers around. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. Ah! They're all like blank printer paper. <laughs> I'll just flip through my notebook like, I, I know I wrote it down. I, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think recently, of something. 
had a, had a had an adventure that was that everybody was down in the underdark and they were trying to look for a way out. Uh, and I had I planned out this whole dungeon that was going to get them most of the way there with a, a cool monster in it. Uh, and they were going to actually meet a new player character down there that I was adding to the group. And they came across a cave-in that was get, would be close to um, to surface access, but uh, they, it was of course a cave-in, and they couldn't get through it, and they were on a time limit. And I thought that that's that's enough justification because like sure they could move the rocks out of the way, but they need to do it in a certain amount of time. There's no way they're going to stay here for weeks to go do that, and they'll they'll, they'll get circumvented to my dungeon. I was an idiot because I had a druid, and he has the shape earth spell. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I remember he said, I, I got this spell. I could just move the rocks. It'll take like an hour. And I was like, all right, cool. That's fine. I need to go use the bathroom. <laughs> that was Charles pulled something like that on me once where I had built this oh, setting God. that was based on Dune, where <laughs> water is such a precious resource that it's used as currency very often. And so I was like, um, the players tried to buy something with gold and the people were like, oh, like, we don't want gold. We take water. And then, like, Charles is like, oh, I can create water. The great water spell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I should have just stayed there and just totally tanked the economy. Could have become a, a water baron. <laughs> I think nine times out of ten, the right call in that situation is to, you know, let the player's abilities do what they're supposed to do, because that's what they're there for. Is there ever an example you guys can think of, of when as a DM you should railroad that? I know railroading is is the scary word, and actually I want to get into that in a later episode. Um, do you think it's ever okay... In, in those examples, to be like, well, the water evaporates, or uh, the earth crumbles around because I can't, like, I'm panicking and I need this to happen. Yeah, just don't tell me you're railroading them. Which yeah, like... Fun, fun dungeon or fun encounter planned, and they're about to circumvent it, you're like, I oh, yeah, know it works, and they successfully get through it, and then just subtly drop that encounter in afterwards as if that was what was behind that wall the whole time. That is a good, a good point. Uh, that's not what I did. I just panicked and freaked out. And, uh, uh, haphazardly added that player character in later. Yeah, like I said, I think you almost always want to let it happen because it, it feels shitty to change a character's abilities or like negate them because you didn't anticipate it. And, you, uh, I mean, it's your players revel in outsmarting you. Uh, and that's that's some of that that's the highest D and D high you get, and uh, <laughs> taking taking that like letting them have that it's it's good it it's it's really cool when they get to do that. And I think had this setting been a like permanent fixture, oh, yeah. and and that was something that I had foreseen, something like that I think would need to be talked about in session zero, like. Be like, hey, we're going to enter a setting where water is currency. I know there's a spell that creates water. Are you guys, like, do you guys yeah. understand that we need to kind of either change the spell or get rid of it for this setting to work? Yeah. And, and so for context, that 
campaign was like a dimension hopping campaign where totally different like universes every couple of sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so think, that was... I think we may have lucked out in that the character I was playing was a Warforged kind of inspired by Data from Star Trek, so he was very like unaware, didn't really pick up on social cues and kind of in his own world. I don't feel like I abused the water thing too much. <laughs> no, and it was... It was it ended up being something that was just like it helped you guys out um yeah while you were there like you were like oh we need to get something I I I think you needed to get somewhere and you you ended up using the water and I ended up I think tying it into the story where um somebody who could create water ended up being like a messiah oh or, yeah like it was did. in the lore um that they're like oh he's the 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 guy that that's going to bring water to us or something like that. <laughs> there he and, is. and yeah, you didn't, you didn't like be like, all right, well, I'm just going to buy, buy this town. Like I'm going to own yeah. the town now, I which even wouldn't have mattered time, if you had, even at the time I was like, Oh, I don't think Willis anticipated this. So I'm not, I'm not going to like ruin this campaign just cause I can. <laughs> but with the nature of the campaign, it ends anyway because it was shortly obliterated this is true yeah nathan in that setting there was this uh, the big bad guy was this like perpetual spreading darkness that was consuming all universes so every couple sessions we had to bamp out of the universe because it was going to be consumed yeah that sounds unpleasant it was pretty cool i, I like it a lot though I, I, when i say unpleasant i mean for the players not the oh yeah yeah, not not shit talking here. <laughs> One of the um, and I kind of want to do more of this. Um, I would almost call it a gimmicky setting. I had the setting that I really really liked. I want to revisit where the the general setting was that there was this fungus that was spreading over the entire world. Oh, I remember this. And like four out of four out of five of the continents were totally consumed by it, and the campaign started on the last one free of it and naturally setting one a giant ship shows up and by giant ship i mean a ship uh populated Boat. by giants yeah uh crashed into the shore covered with the fungus and the party spent some time experimenting with it and trying to stop it but eventually Someone they realized it was <laughs> a true had lost a leg um <laughs> But then the, the party realized that it was just going to keep encroaching. And I really enjoyed that, like, ticking clock element of, like, the party felt pressured to always be moving because there was a literally like a, a sea of fungus at their backs, always advancing. And that, another reason I liked it is because on the other side of this continent that they were being forced towards was um, an entire group of uh, like a hostile nation that it agreed to stay on that side of the continent and the other side of the continent had agreed to stay on their side. So they were being forced towards the middle. And I'm really sad that campaign died out because that was just such like, it was like ticking time bomb on so many levels. Didn't you? Well, I mean, if you don't want me to say it in case you want to use it again later, but didn't you have an idea that like they were going to meet in the middle because. Yes. But, I don't know if okay. I ever told you this, Nathan, because you were actually part of this campaign. I was, was one of the Winthroses. Yeah, so, uh, spoilers, if I never told you, there was fungus spreading on the other side of the continent, too, so that hostile Whoa. nation was also being forced away, so eventually they would have both been forced to meet in the middle, 
And uh, I had no idea how to resolve any of that. I didn't even have <laughs> an idea for like how to stop the fungus, but that's one of those things that I just kind of hoped I'd figure out along the way. <laughs> that's, that's, that's always how it goes, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It just takes one of your players to be like, hey, why don't we do this? And you're like, yes. <laughs> I, you know, that actually reminds me of something I want to ask you guys. How early do you design elements of things you want to use? And for that, I mean, like, if you have an idea for an overarching plot, how much do you plan out before you plan on using it? I have found that, like, um, if, if I'm if I get inspired from a book I'm reading and I write that note, I'm like, oh shit, I should do something with werewolves. But my, in my brain, I'm like, well, they're in the middle of an arc right now, so maybe I'll do it in like 10, 20 sessions from now. By the time I get to that, I don't have that drive anymore. I've sort of lost the interest. So how how soon do you plan content that you actually want to use? It, I guess it depends on the um, scale. If it's the overarching story for the campaign, I try and nail as much of the important details for that down immediately. Uh, if it's for some smaller scale thing, like uh, I usually have a vague understanding of what the players are going to be doing next, but I don't really work on exactly the exact details of that until they're coming right to it. Uh, if it's something I'm really excited about and really want to work on, I just I knock that out immediately because you gotta gotta use that passion, mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll. I'll Narrow, like I'll get as much I can out of out of that motivation, and uh, then once it becomes relevant, I'll I'll build on that. What about you, uh, Willis? Well, <laughs> I don't know that I can really speak too much to this subject because I haven't had any really long-lasting uh, campaigns. Uh -oh. uh, I I kind of go a little bit slower with my stuff, where it's um, whatever whatever I end up kind of weaving in is part of the main plot. And I just kind of like, if I have an idea for something, I will stick it in my pocket to use later and then just kind of maybe develop it a little bit here and there. Um, mm -hmm. But unless I'm like ready to implement it into the campaign, like I don't really write anything concrete you just down. Kind of, uh, you just design what you plan on immediately using. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I one of my like core DM philosophies is use what you think is cool now, um, because a lot of DM game D uh, D and D games will eventually just die, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But it it's what is it? There's some statistic like only like thirty percent hit level fifteen, something like that. You will never get to level twenty ever. And everyone's going to be totally wrong, but like it's very rare for a game to, you know, go all the way to level 20. So if you have cool ideas, use them now. And the, the thing about D&D is you can change everything. I had, and this might offend people, but I don't care. I had a group of level three adventurers go up against a colony of mind flares because I like mind flares and I was inspired to do mind flares. So obviously I nerfed the fuck out of them. Um, but they they fought some mind flares. And again, that might offend some people because you do have to get rid of a lot of their abilities. And I'm sure mind flares are seen as these incredibly big threats. And there is an issue of like, well, where do you go from here if they fought mind flares at level three? But I don't know. Rebuilding stuff and adjusting its CR 
can do a lot for you. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I like, I think it's one of the early on things in the Dungeon Master's book, was it was like the the scope of power for your characters is like one to five is like the fate of a town, I think. And then mm. five to ten is like the fate of a, a large city. I think um, it calls it like local hero. Doesn't it talk about like levels of heroism? I might be wrong. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be like local hero, city hero, world hero, planar hero. And I don't like planar yep. hero. That's a scale I don't I don't fuck with. That's weird. Yeah, and that was that was basically the like fate of a town, fate of a city, fate of a, a continent, fate of the world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of you are adjusting. Yeah, that's a good point because like these mind flayers were not world threatening, which I feel like some mind flayers arguably are, at least continent threatening for sure. But in in the setting that I was presenting it, they were threatening a city. And yeah, I, and I it's feel like that's a bit more appropriate for level three. Yeah, and it's all about how how you frame the bad guys. You know, like there could be a dragon that's you know, it's a it's a dragon, but maybe it's a young dragon and it's a lazy dragon. And it's just terrorizing <laughs> a village. That's all it's doing. And then maybe on the other hand you have a very old dragon who is plotting and he's gathering followers and he's, you know, getting ready to tear a portal into the fabric of reality Jeez. that changes you know it's it's all about how you They're yeah. both dragons but that's a, matters. that's a really good point and i actually feel better about my mind player thing now because <laughs> again it, you're totally right it, it just depends on the level of threat they are presenting you could have you could have rats that are threatening a city if you just I don't know if you have enough. I guess I don't know. That's probably they're a bad smart example. rats. They're 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 eating the they're eating the foundations of the city. They're gonna break open a dam and flood the city because they're aqua rats or some shit. You know, maybe regular ass rats is a bad example. Um, <laughs> but my point being that if you just raise the stakes of what they're threatening, anything can be a threat, and conversely, anything can be a smaller threat. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, we really learned a lot today, folks. And that was um, the the infamous. I think they were Tucker's kobolds, Ooh. where they're just they're they're just kobolds, but they're wickedly smart and they're just mean, and they they you know use advantages and they're tactical. Like they're just mm-hmm. kobolds, but they they messed up some players. Like I haven't I've heard about that. It, they had like just really cruel traps right they they use yeah they had like tunnels that were like kobold size that they were running through the tunnels they had traps set up where they would kick flaming barrels down at them while harassing the players from both sides with um crossbows yeah and they're like it was just like it was this area was there um favored terrain i guess you could say and they knew how to use to like maximum effect against players. Mm-hmm. When you really, when you really think about it, it was less like the kobolds themselves were were nasty. It was more like the players were trying to siege a fortress by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> Tucker's kobolds are are not to be fucked with. I think I have one final thing I want to touch on, and this might be backtracking a little bit, <clears throat> but it's something 
worth bringing up, I think. Um, when thinking and when designing your world, again, try not to get overwhelmed, but I think some things you want to consider are the prevalence of magic. Um, oh, yeah. Is Are there magic vendors in every city? Can only one people in a thousand even cast magic? Um, that that will go a long way to establishing the tone of your setting. I frequently do very high magic settings where, like, you know, magic vendors in every town. But recently I've been inspired um, to do the exact opposite. I think the next setting I want to do is going to be very, very, very low magic. I'm messing with the idea of, like, magic not even being around anymore, and maybe it can come back. But at least if it's very, very, like, little... I think that makes magic a lot more compelling and interesting. If you have a party where three out of four of the people can cast magic, it doesn't feel that special. And again, like, totally depends on your setting, and it's a va- it's valid to have the entire party be spellcasters. Yeah, and one of the most, I think, um, obvious ways that a higher, ma- higher low magic setting will present itself is in the prevalence of magic items. Mm-hmm. And this is something again that goes back. You gotta talk to your players about what kind of what they want, and it can be really awesome to have a character that's just got oodles and oodles of magic items, and they have so many options that's disposable for things that they want to do. You know that makes things harder for you as a DM, but at the same time, it kind of cheapens the effect of a magic item. I totally where... agree. Yeah, where if if magic items are rare, um, when you get that magic item, it's, you know, you're like, oh my god, like, I got a magic item, and, you know, it feels better. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a bit more exciting if a player has, like, the magic sword, which is his magic sword, and, and I love Critical Role, like, I completely love that, but there were moments in cam- in the first campaign where multiple players would be like, hmm, which one of my magic swords do I want to use? And that seems like a weird moment. Mm-hmm. And it's to be like, I've got all these different swords. Well, I think it's also, and it depends on the kinds of players as well. I like, um, I love having an arsenal of magic items that I, I can, like, it's sort of, sort of like being like Batman. It's like, you've got your utility belt. <laughs> uh, and an easy way around that, which is something that I like to do as a DM, to give them the thing that is their magic sword, is give them their magic sword. So what I what I've been starting to do with a lot of my games is I'm I I will homebrew my characters, uh, my players uh, some unique signature magic items. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope my players aren't watching this because I'm going to talk about my favorite one. Is I created a, a for I have a character <laughs> that's uh, playing like trying to go for like a Valkyrie aesthetic. She's like sort of like a, a, a got like spear shield sort of thing going on, and the the player uh, it. Uh, going for this idea i thought would really you know like a lightning sphere type deal uh and so i like i basically just made a sphere that had three abilities that the player would have to unlock and it will objectively because it's busted op be the best weapon that they that she can field uh-huh. and so uh, i can still start handing out magic items like candy and give them like their cool awesome arsenal that they can either sell for loot or have a different variety of things to use. But then I also have pl- each individual player will have an item that when they think of their character, think that's what my character uses. My character wields Valor, the Spear of Lightning. Yeah. 
totally plan on stealing this, by the way. <laughs> not, not the spirit specifically, but the concept of uh, individual like items at scale with people. Critical yeah. did the same thing. Is that's what Matt Mercer did with the um, the Exalted. vestiges of Divergen divergence. Yeah, that's what it is. So like every player, every character had their unique vestige that was unique to them, or not necessarily unique to them, but like I always, I I never think of Vax without the Deathwalker's Ward anymore. Spoilers for Critical Role. I apologize if you haven't watched. <laughs> hours upon hours that is campaign one it ended like three years ago <laughs> so something that i kind of want to add to that is that i love the idea of magic items that feel like a part of the character and i also love having you know a utility belt and you know having just all this utility magic items as well um something that i've seen done that was less exciting for me was uh, I had a, a friend who liked to roll on the magic table for for loot and or just like it was it was always rolling for, for loot because they loved the randomosity of it which you know I, I do too but when you get your first magic item and it's you know something that's useless for your character or just kind of lame it really like it kind of like dulls your excitement for the game yeah. a little bit. Uh, hot take. I hate random charts. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I understand their their place. Um, but personally, I will never use a random encounter chart or a random loot chart. I feel like those are things that should be tailored for the experience. Like again, like kind of like we're talking about like items that make sense for the characters. It's gonna feel really good for your fighter to get that uh, flame tongue sword, and he'll he'll kind of know like, oh shit, this is for me. But if you give a party of all fighters a magic staff, they'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, and then they'll, just, they'll be like, of, oh, we'll just go sell it. Kind of touching on it, like in terms of random encounters, I feel like you can it's always more beneficial to use an encounter that builds towards a plot. Like uh, in the campaign I did recently, you guys fought a bunch of evil dolls, which hints at what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just would feel really wrong to just roll a chart like, oh, I guess bats are attacking you. That's not really relevant to what's going on, but here's some bats. Unless you make it relevant. Yeah, but then you're kind of, I don't know, you're, you're giving yourself needless work work to stitch stuff together yeah i think if, if you have nathan, oh i don't want to cut you off else, but i think i cut nathan off if i want to give him a chance to oh. say what he's gonna say all right fine i i talk up a storm so i i know how that goes uh but i i say i do use uh the i don't use random encounter charts i, I agree with that i think uh i'll oftentimes put in um more or less superfluous things but at the very least uh, for encounters but i don't like rolling for it it's no fun as, uh, for magic items, though, uh, I do use that table, and I think that's that's more for my sake to make generating loot easier on me so I don't have to come up with every single item every time, and it's not always the most useful item because I don't want to increase that power level. I think the important distinction, though, is it's uh, you don't... It's, it's, not, it's not a software that's going to just automatically do things for you. You don't have to do what it says. So if I roll a result that's not... Like, if I've got a party full of fighters and I roll a wand of the war mage, I'm like... Well, I don't have to give him a wand of the war mage, so I think I sort of like do like a pseudo 
seeded random generation where I I I have to confirm anything that gets rolled because, like you said, it it sucks if you if you get a magic item nobody can use and it's like well that's no fun. So oftentimes, like so, sometimes I'll let some magic items slip through that aren't maybe fantastic but still useful. Like, uh, but I will I have to 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 vet every single item that gets rolled in there. But I think it's still cool to have that randomization to you, not even I know what they're gonna get. So while while we're talking about random tables and sort of world building and to kind of tie some points together, I think random tables are fine when it kind of doesn't doesn't really affect the story. Like I had my players, they were they had some downtime and I had just recently read a thing on some subreddit, I can't remember which one, um, about mechanics and rules for fishing. And one of them was like, I'm going to go fishing at the stream. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, (laughs) I just read a thing for this. And I was like, you guys, I got a table for this. Like, let's let's whip it out. Let's do some rolls and let's have, you know, let's let's roll some dice and have a little bit of fun here real quick since it's downtime. And in in that case, one of the players ended up rolling a uh, I think it was a a it wasn't a dragon turtle. It was. Yeah, no, no, it was a dragon turtle. They rolled a they rolled a a dragon turtle. Yeah, but it's just like it's just like a snapping turtle, basically. Like it it didn't oh, okay. exist in the world until I put it into the world, and I was like, oh yeah, it's a turtle that kind of looks like a dragon. Because yeah. dragon turtles dragon like turtle. the size of islands. Yeah, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it was it was something that's like it's a dragon turtle in the same way that a dragonfly is a dragon. Gotcha. You know, what I'm and the character or the player was just like, oh my god, a turtle! Like, and they were like, I have a turtle pet now, and they were super enamored with it. It's just like a cool little. <laughs> side plot thing but when it comes to like and like other things that are going to impact the story i you know won't roll on a table for that but again like it's a downtime they want to they want to fight something inconsequential maybe they're just like hey we're itching to kill some shit then i'll be like all right maybe we'll bring out a table and you guys can roll some dice or something mm-hmm. feel it i Feel like we should wrap up. <laughs> We've gone over an hour. Oh boy! Um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to keep going, honestly, but uh, we got to keep this somewhat digestible. I think. I think um, at some point we'll sort of we'll figure out our our, our rhythm and our tempo. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. We're we're also starting to lean into things I want to talk about in later episodes. So, <laughs> yeah, I um, felt that. Just some maybe some final thoughts from each of us. Um, my advice for world building we've said it a lot but start small nothing is canon until you say it out loud and even then (laughs) even then you can retcon it i guess (laughs) the power lies in your hands should you have the courage to use it it's all pretend anyway yeah so uh well thanks for listening to the first episode everyone thanks mom um (laughs) I think next week I would like to talk about designing a villain. Ooh. And if we have time for it, which we probably will, is also uh, integrating your characters or your players' backstories into the plot. Yes. Being a little more story-based for the next session. Sounds good to me. Well, hell yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for talking.